Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. My name's David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Hayden Smith, the head of credit for Tribeca's Global Natural Resources Credit Fund, a fund that aims to return 12 to 15% per annum to investors through income on loans provided to mining and resources companies globally. They also derive returns from equity kickers or options and also fees associated with setting up those loans. In this episode, we explore the reasons why the opportunity in this area exists and why the opportunity to derive equity-like returns in double digits on debt instruments exists due to some change in legislation and market dynamics. We also talk about Hayden's experience over 20 years leading the team at Macquarie Bank in the financing of the mining sector. Please remember that this podcast is not designed or is it an endorsement of this investment vehicle and we encourage everyone to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and also to seek personal financial advice before making investments. I hope you enjoy the episode. I certainly did. Please remember to provide your feedback and like and subscribe to the podcast. I hope you enjoy. Hayden Smith, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thanks very much, David. Good to be here. Hayden, perhaps you could start off and give us a little bit about your background, please. Yeah, sure. Uh, So I spent 20 years at Macquarie Bank, uh, actually started off then on the Sydney Futures Exchange floor, Mm -hmm. which sort of dates myself a little bit, but um, that parlayed into a role on the metals and mining desk uh, in the late 90s, and uh, which eventually ended up being part of the uh, the producer desk on the uh, in the metals and mining business at Macquarie, uh, which which really gave me exposure to uh, the in many ways the birth of mine financing, um, certainly in Australia, but in a lot of ways globally. I mean, Macquarie was a real innovator in the space and and one of the first players in that global niche market of, of resources lending. Uh, and, and so I got a really good insight into a lot of different deals, a lot of different projects, management teams, seeing loans from uh, from beginning to end, and uh, and ultimately moved up to New York with Macquarie and spent five years up there running the uh, the business in the Americas, and finally moving back to Australia to to run the the business on a on a global basis. Okay, and now you find yourself as the head of credit for Tribeca. Yes, that's right. So um, I guess over that, um, over that period of time, the world changed uh, when, when you, you, you work at a bank and you're, you're de- deploying a bank balance sheet. And um, post-GFC and, and the ever-increasing capital adequacy requirements um, that were being forced upon banks by regulators, the business that we were in at Macquarie and, and other banks like it were finding um, finding it much more difficult to deploy capital in a, um, you know, in a profitable way as they were um, in, in previous periods. So eventually it, it became clear to me that our business, whilst thriving in, in absolute terms, really belonged on a non-bank balance sheet. Uh, so ultimately, I, um, I left Macquarie in 2017 after, after 20 years and started with Tribeca in 2018 to, uh, to run the credit strategy at Tribeca in the natural resources space. So we've had the long short 
uh, equities guys on from your team, but maybe just for our listeners, give us a quick update or reminder on who is Tribeca. Absolutely. So Tribeca is a, a boutique Australian fund manager based here in Sydney, has offices in Singapore and London. Um, our pedigree, if you like, is um, Australian equities, uh, in particular small caps, um, which is a strategy run by David Aylwood, the CEO of Tribeca. And about uh, five years uh, or so ago, uh, two other of my former Macquarie colleagues, Ben Cleary and Craig Evans, joined Tribeca to roll out their global natural resources long short strategy, uh, yeah. which has been highly successful, has won a lot of awards. <coughs> and as, as part of that rollout, Ben and Craig really noticed and, and, and were fully aware of the fact that credit was um, you, you know, was still needed, obviously, in the natural resources space, but there are fewer and fewer providers of credit. And um, we, we ultimately put our heads together to, to form a separate vehicle, I guess, under the natural resources banner at Tribeca, but dedicated solely on credit products. And if, I, if I'm right, Hayden, um, have I got it right that uh, management own all of the equity in Tribeca that provides wonderful alignment with investors? Absolutely. Yep. It's 100% staff owned. Something we always like to see. Um, perhaps you could give us a little bit of insight to what you do at Tribeca and, and you know the Natural Resources Credit Fund, um, how it does it and why it does it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the, the, the Global Natural Resources Credit Fund, as we call it, um, is essentially a strategy to provide debt capital to the metals, mining, energy, soft commodity space, as well as the service companies that wrap around that universe. So it's actually quite a large universe. Um, we're specifically focusing on the smaller and mid-cap end of the market, those entities that perhaps in previous years may have been able to get access to bank credit, but now no longer can. So um, it, it's certainly not the ultra speculative end of the market. By the same token, it's not AAA rated balance sheets either. Um, and, and we've found, and particularly in my experience at Macquarie, that has been a very lucrative corner of the market where there are a relatively small number of, of players, so um, a great market structure from a lender's point of view. There's a large universe of borrowers and um, you typically have access to uh, publicly traded equity markets, which, which is a, a great um, you know, source of comfort as a lender because ultimately when you are lending to these entities from time to time, they will need to top up uh, equity um, and, and bolster their balance sheet. And we want to ensure that we're not the, um, the only provider of capital in the capital structure. And, and you're talking about loans, generally speaking, 10 to $50 million, maybe up to the $100 million mark. Is that about right? Exactly. Yeah, that's right. I mean, our laneway, if you like, is that 10 to $50 million sweet spot. Um, ultimately, we are one of, if not the only player in that space, certainly in this part of the world, there is a small handful of other funds globally who are natural resources specialists, um, as are we. And uh, however, they are predominantly funded by North American pensions, which tends to see them writing checks of sort of $200 million plus. 
so in my experience um, at Macquarie and also at Tribeca is at that 10 to $50 million area of the market, your borrower has equity markets open to them and you're in a position where if something doesn't quite go to plan, it's not the end of the world for them to raise equity capital to either pay you down or take you out. Mm -hmm. um, and, and this is a really sort of important risk mitigant in the whole process because ultimately, you know, the smaller ticket size does give you a lot more flexibility um, as a lender. And why does the opportunity exist? The opportunity to get equity-like return in double-digit return out of a debt instrument for most people would seem unusual. Um, why, why does the opportunity exist, Hayden? It does seem unusual and we do spend a bit of time uh, discussing the structure um, of the deals because, as you say, double-digit return uh, in terms of coupon plus some sort of equity kicker is very much a mezzanine type return profile when actually we have a senior secured risk profile. Uh, so 95% of our portfolio uh, is senior secured debt where we have security all the way down to the tangible assets at site, uh, mining tenement mortgages, secured guarantees down, deposit account control agreements, a very belts and braces approach to security. Um, but that is the case because even when bank credit was available, there was a very small number of, of bank lenders in the space. So it's always been a niche market where only specialists survive. Uh, now, if you move into the current regime where those specialist banks are pulling back, you've got a situation where a market that always had wide spreads now has wider spreads. Uh, so what we find is that the vast majority of our borrowers are weighing up a debt facility with ourselves or equity. So mm -hmm. the marginal dollar of capital, if you like, is equity, which really gives us a good indication of how to price the deal. Okay. And talk about maybe the regulatory framework and the changes uh, to some of the regulation there, which I think is also providing a tailwind, if you could. Absolutely. I mean, look, that's a good part of the, the market structure in that any regulated entity such as a bank um, with, with the onset of, of BAL 3 and 4, ultimately what that means is for a given $100 loaned to a counterparty, more capital or more equity needs to be held against that loan. Um, now, that used to be um, a relatively small number in a pre-GFC world, and that has increased by a multiple. Um, so the impact on the profitability for a leveraged balance sheet like a bank's is, is immense, whereas for a, a fund like ours where we are unleveraged, this is an absolute return unleveraged strategy, um, it makes no difference to us because, of course, uh, you know, a 20% return on $100 is a 20% return, and, and, and ultimately we're not looking to leverage that position in any way. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the competitors you have in the Australian market, what sort of names are they? The, the only um, closest competitor, I guess we would, we would say, would be Taurus Funds Management. Um, mm -hmm. They've been in the business for, uh, for a while. They're ex-bankers just like we are. Uh, and, and we do have some degree of overlap, but we, we tend to be participating in different corners of the market, if you like. They, they tend to, um, and certainly not 
not wanting to speak for them, but in our observation, they tend to uh, write much larger tickets, so mm -hmm. much more like that $200 million uh, area and certainly a greater um, you know, focus on project finance facilities where you have a greenfield development um, whereas in our particular portfolio, we're really targeting, as we mentioned, the smaller 10 to $50 million tickets, but also a borrower profile that is advanced from that greenfield development stage. So for example, it, it could be a working capital facility, um, an expansion facility, an acquisition facility, um, anywhere where the full spectrum of risks in the in the resources space have been mitigated in in some fashion. Uh, so typically, that is a project which is fully constructed and is now ramping up, and ramp up capital is is required. Um, and and that's very much the case with you know, the initial deals that we've done. They tend to be fully built on um, on equity dollars or or perhaps on a a different uh, debt balance sheet and we're coming in to provide working capital. So for us, it's it's a situation that we much prefer uh, versus Greenfield Project Finance, uh, just because we've seriously mitigated a lot of those technical risks and, and we've all heard horror stories of overtime and over budget and, and I've certainly seen it plenty of times in, in my career. And, um, and during that time at Macquarie, particularly during the down cycles, my observation was certainly that the facilities that were related to Greenfield Project Finance were a bit more challenging during those down periods because you're, you're dealing with you know, a half-built gold project, which could be in some faraway place, as opposed to um, you have to take the situation of one of our borrowers, a, uh, a lithium project in Western Australia, mm -hmm. which was fully constructed when we came in and, and provided working capital and, um, and, and is sort of has a, a market cap, which is many multiples of the, the actual debt facility. Okay. So in that case, you've lent an amount of money for what sort of term? That particular facility uh, was about a two and a half year term. Um, it's the the economics on that. It was it was a US dollar loan, so it was LIBOR plus thirteen percent. Yes. Uh, so we're we're talking sort of just north of fifteen percent all in return. Um, there were some fees attached to that deal. Um, at so the establishment outset. fees. Establishment fees, which yes. flowed straight into the fund. And and in some of your transactions, you have a carry or an equity kicker type of thing. Uh, is that sort of thing that's been put in place on that transaction? That, that's right. On that particular transaction, it didn't have equity okay. options or warrants, but a, um, a more recent transaction uh, in the coal space, for example, did have optionality attached to it. Okay. And it looks to me, looking at the portfolio and the material, that the average loan is around that two and a half year, that sort of 30 month. Exactly. Sort of yeah. But between two and three years is, is really the sweet spot for us. We tend to prefer... Uh, to a maximum tenor of three years, which uh, you know, is, is, a nimble, um, is a nimble maturity where it only takes 12 months and you're, you're looking at a current asset or current liability rather from the borrower's point of view, which then makes the, um, the refinance discussion happen at, a, at an early stage and you're constantly in dialogue with the, with the borrower 
and it's never a case from their point of view of, oh, well, we don't need to worry about our lender because you know, we'll only see them on the day that it's due. We're in constant contact. So Hayden, this tends to, in discussions with clients, come back to, well, this all comes down to the skill of the person, uh, A, identifying the credit, and B, their ability to negotiate the right terms in an agreement so that they're suitably protected. Um, the credit analyst, and we've got the person here, so it's a good conversation, I think. Can you tell us a little bit about your process that you go through to ensure that you've got the right sort of uh, debt instruments uh, in the portfolio? Absolutely. I guess I uh, will start by saying three quarters of our team are uh, my uh, former colleagues from Macquarie, uh, so there is a very strong uh, Macquarie-like culture um, in the team and, and our approach to risk management and, um, and deal structuring. So, um, yeah, the, the, the first of whom was actually a lawyer rather than an analyst or, um, or a geologist, um, all of whom we have in the team. And why is that? Why is the, why is the lawyer first off the rank? These are very labour-intensive deals. Um, yeah, we've, we've, we've executed eight deals in 12 months, which to, to, to those in a liquid traded credit space does not sound like much, but every deal is bespoke and requires a great deal of technical legal due diligence and legal documentation. Uh, so this is, um, this is a very high touch type business and, um, and getting that legal structure right and that security structure right is imperative um, for us. So as, as far as the process goes, I mean, we have a um, a screening process which ultimately sets aside you know, well north of 90% of every deal that crosses our desk. Um, but once we have a, um, a positive view on the asset, the people, and the market dynamics, we'll take the next level um, of, of due diligence, which would involve a site visit. We have an in-house geologist uh, who will go out to site with us and go through technical reports. We have the ability to recreate uh, mineral resource modelling from scratch if need be, um, which is a very powerful tool. I mean, we, we have um, decades of experience within the team who um, have, have provided consulting services to um, ASX 100 companies in, in the mining space um, over the years. So it's, it's a great resource to have. Uh, once we've got to the point of, of making a technical call on a particular asset, we'll move into the legal due diligence and start structuring for that security. But ultimately, as I mentioned before, it's very much a belts and braces approach. So we would typically start at the asset level, taking security over all of the fixed and, and floating assets of the company, um, secured guarantees down from the parent, etc. And what sort of ratio would that normally be over the lens? So if you lend $50 million, what sort of level of security would you have a claim against? It, it's, very, it, it's very much a deal-by-deal um, deal basis. So uh, one particular deal, for example, uh, where we have a, a $40 million loan exposure, um, the, the company is actually in a net cash position right now. Their market cap um, is about $350 million, where the only debt in the structure. Um, it has a high strategic value to a neighbouring project. Uh, so that's that's one example where you know we're many times covered on the current value. We all know that when things aren't going to plan, you need to assume that you're some fraction of that. 
Mm -hmm. um, but ultimately, we're, we're in a position of being at the top of the capital, capital stack, being in control of, of any sort of workout process, if it ever occurred, and being sort of many times covered on, a, on a, uh, an asset valuation basis. But by the same token, we've got another deal where um, the particular counterparty has five-year fixed-price offtakes with highly rated balance sheets, for argument's sake, and ultimately we are lending against those offtake contracts more so than the fixed asset value. So it's it's very much a um, you know a bespoke approach to how we look at security. Suffice to say, it's a it's a conservative approach. Over the last 20 years, both with Macquarie and Tribeca, you must have had, uh, hopefully back at Macquarie, not Tribeca now, uh, a few of these go the wrong way. Um, can you t describe or talk to us about when this style of lending doesn't work or it goes off the rails? What does that look and feel like? Maybe you can talk to us about an example. Uh, well, look, I can, I'm glad to say that none have gone off the rails um, since I've been at Tribeca and, and absolutely over 20 years at Macquarie, seeing a number of commodity cycles. Um, I saw a number of deals that, that had to be worked out of. And, um, you know, I guess that's, that it comes back to getting your documentation right at the outset and your security. And, and it's little nuances like ensuring that you have security over all or substantially all of the assets, which puts you in a position to appoint a receiver over the top of an administrator should the company find itself in that situation. And, and why is that important? Because you essentially have the ability to take that administrator away from that fee-earning opportunity, uh, which gives you leverage, and ultimately that administrator tends to listen to what you request. Uh, so control is, is key. Uh, we always make sure that we've done everything that we can to ensure that we are in control of a workout process should uh, we find ourselves in that position. And, and, and for that reason, we don't participate in other people's deals. We structure our own deals. Occasionally, we will bring in a co-investor into our deals, but we will not go into someone else's deal. So you'll only lead the deal? Correct, mm -hmm. correct. Um, so during that process, uh, which you know it could be months or it could be over a year, um, but it's a case of working with, typically with an administrator or if you're in, in Australia, and working with the company, because oftentimes you don't get to administration. Um, that is really the worst of the worst. What may happen is that things have not gone to plan uh, at the operation. Um, we will typically pick that up through our operating covenants in the documentation. Uh, which is you know, a trigger for us well before it's expressed in a, a financial covenant. So what I mean by that is if the company is not performing to their budget, we will see a covenant breach in our documentation. This is not always the case in other people's loan facilities. Most loan facilities would typically just have financial covenants where a leverage ratio, for argument's sake, has been breached. Mm -hmm. Uh, but ultimately, why has the leverage ratio been breached? Things haven't gone to plan. Uh, so we try to get that trigger as early as possible. And, um, and once we get that trigger, we're in a position of, of power, of leverage with the borrower to sit down and go through why have, have things not gone to plan. 
And um, if it looks like, uh, you know, let's say for argument's sake, they're only producing 80% of the commodity that they thought they should or would, then that's a conversation to, um, to have where they need to reduce the amount of debt that they're, they're carrying, which ulti ultimately leads to um, an equity raising. So sort of circling back to that whole 10 to 50 mil area of the market, if you had a $50 million loan and you had a, you know, an issue like this, a $20 million capital raising is, is certainly not beyond the realms of what is typically doable in an orderly market where you might have um, an equity base of three or $400 million. That, there's no way that, that group of equity owners is going to lose their asset um, for a $20 million um, prepayment on a loan. Uh, so that's, that is actually the typical case where we will see uh, a covenant breach in the, uh, in the facility documentation that will precipitate a discussion with management and ultimately whether management agree with us or not, we do have the, the leverage that we need in the documentation to ensure that uh, you know, our capital is protected and either a prepayment is made or a complete refinancing is, um, is brought about. And how do you go managing that if the loan is outside Australia or to a company or a project outside Australia? Well, we, uh, I, I guess I should first say that the only countries outside of Australia that we're looking to, um, to deploy capital are, call it category A type jurisdictions. So, you know, apart from Australia, New Zealand, US, Canada. So established mining jurisdictions where there's a very strong rule of law and, and, and mining law at that. Um, and where we have some competitive advantage. So mm -hmm. I've spent a lot of time in, in North America. Um, half my family is from there, so I, I spend a couple of months a year up there and I'm close to that market. Um, notwithstanding, the typical deal with a North American exposure would have some sort of Australian nexus, for argument's sake. So we do have a coal exposure in the US at the moment. Um, it has an ASX-listed parent company and and... and part of management and board are located here in Australia. Um, but ultimately it means getting on the ground. To, to get to your question, uh, we would typically visit a site a minimum two times a year for regular uh, technical updates. So that would involve um, either myself or, or one of the other sort of financial members of the team with our in-house geologist, as well as external consultants on an, on an as-needed basis. Mm -hmm. um, Let's maybe talk a little bit about return. What do you think is the right sort of expectation for an investor into a fund like this to expect as a reasonable return? Well, look, I guess um, at the moment, our gross running yield is just under 12% per annum. Uh, and about half of our book in terms of face value carries optionality or is convertible for want of a better term. Um, and our, our year to date, 10 months year to date return, net of fees in our founders class is 16.5%. Uh, and, uh, and that's 19% from inception, which is 12 months. Um, so look, we're, we think a reasonable expectation in this space is somewhere between 12 to 15% net of fees. We're ahead of that at the moment, uh, which is very pleasing for us. Um, but you know, ultimately, the, the portfolio has access to contracted cash flows being coupon and, and interest payments paid quarterly in cash 
as well as origination fees, which drop straight into the fund that are paid out regularly to, uh, to investors. And then any realisation from an equity warrant or option is, is also folded in. So you know, you're really looking at um, you know, 12 to 15% with the occasional year where you're going to beat that, where one or more of those equity kickers has really contributed. And I noticed in March there was a negative 1.72 printed, which for many people investing what they see is predominantly a debt fund with interest carry with some fees on top and an equity t kicker on top would be somewhat unusual. Is that just those equity kicker or option or warrant type uh, kickers on top being revalued or what drove that negative 1.72? That's, that's exactly what it is. So those, those equity kickers, are, as I mentioned, if they are not in the money, they carry zero value. Um, and our, our portfolio is, is valued by an external third party group every month. However, if that uh, option is in the money, its intrinsic value is valued in our, in our NAV. And ultimately what happened in March is that we had, uh, late last year, we had an option position go in the money. And in March, we actually realized the vast majority of that position. And we realized it at a price which was slightly below where it had been marked the previous month, but significantly higher than the strike price. So. Ultimately, that was a, a meaningful realised gain. However, that negative number in March was actually a revaluation mark from the February close. So it, it certainly is something that does uh, warrant asking the question. And, and ultimately, you know, that is the answer in that it is a remark of a profit position um, rather than any movement in the actual capital um, of the business. And it's, it's probably also worth pointing out that um, as we stand today, uh, only about 2% of the portfolio is in unrealised gains. So this is not a portfolio that is sitting on a, uh, you know, a meaningful amount of mark-to-market um, know, -market gain. It, it is, um, you know, is realised cash income um, and only 2% of the portfolio valuation right now is, is in unrealised gains. No, I think that's really helpful and, and really important. If we make, just circle back to some of those deals where they don't work out and in your experience, what, what is the cause for the company not to work out? You know, I guess for many of our clients and investors, they will you know, think of resources and commodities and global macro demand and see it as very hard to pick and quite a risky area and then sort of lending to mining projects or companies that haven't been able to borrow directly once again, you know, a bit of an eyebrow. And I think you've done a good job of articulating why this is significantly de-risked. But where companies come off the rails and there is a call um, or covenants are breached, what tends to be the reason why that has happened, you know, in, in a business operational sense? Is it because the geology reports were wrong or, or an operational cost blew out? Is there any sort of rhyme or reason that you tend to see? Uh, the short answer to that is no, in that it does tend to be idiosyncratic risks that are associated with individual borrowers. And I guess another way to look at it in that what is it not typically Contrary to, I guess, what a lot of people may think, it is typically not a change in the commodity price because the vast majority of our borrowers either have commodity hedging of their own or uh, through derivatives or through fixed price uh, offtakes. 
So it, it is typically not the case of the commodity price moving um, you know, south in a, in a meaningful way. Uh, however, if we were, as an aside, if we were in that project finance world, that probably is your, your biggest driver um, over the cycle. What we do tend to see is that it is one of these um, particular risks associated with, with, a, uh, with an operation. It could be a metallurgical issue where recoveries just aren't quite what they're expected to be. It could be a case of um, you know, the drill and blast, for argument's sake, is not going to plan and they're, uh, you know, they're moving the, the blasted ore away from where it was and therefore when it ends up in the mill, it is being diluted with a lot of waste or alternatively, they've sent a lot of that ore to the waste dump because it ended up over here when it should have been over there. It, it's little operational These are sort of operational issues. risks. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So that's... And that's, do you ever see any uh, sort of like fraud? We, we, it's interesting, I was talking to a hedge fund manager today who's very active on the short side and, and globally, and they believe that, you know, biotechs and mining companies are amongst the you know, most fertile ground for shorting in that there's a, a lot of frauds in the area. Do you ever see that or are you in a part of the market or a level of establishment beyond where there's sort of speculative mining going on? I, look, that's, that is very much the case. And, and I guess the comment that I would make on, on uh, the concept of, of frauds, et cetera, in the mining space is that it all comes back to the the mineral resource, and and that is where uh, that's where the real due diligence needs to be done. And to put it in in layman's terms, is the gold there or not? Mm. And um, and that is why we have a geologist in house uh, to be able to really um, test the veracity of a mineral resource model that has been presented to us. And um, you know, from from that point forward in the mining process. It is very difficult to, to, to pull the wool over the eyes of, um, of any investor because you can, you can look at it. Are the trucks there? Is, is the ore going into the processing plant? Are the Doré bars coming out the other end for argument's sake? But in terms of trying to get a feel for what is exactly in the ground, that is where um, the rubber meets the road in the metals and mining space in particular. And, um, and that is where we spend a great deal of time to ensure that um, you know, the ore body performs as per the technical report and how do we best mitigate this? Oftentimes, deal with a project that's already in operation. If it's been mined before, you might have, whether it's six months of data or 10 years of data, that is way more valuable than a nice, shiny, bankable feasibility study, which is based on uh, essentially call holes and software. Yep, yep. Hayden, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate your insight and uh, look at some fascinating information there and uh, a segment of the market that would be very new for our clients uh, and, and people listening, I'm sure. So thank you very much for that. Pleasure. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com.
Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.